Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. As heartbreaking, inspiring, and complicated as it was to visit the Poland-Ukraine border this past week, what was most painful was not anything I saw, but what I knew I wasn't seeing. These were, after all, the lucky ones, the ones who got out, who were able to get to Poland. However hard it was for me and my rabbinic colleagues to see the desperation, the dislocation, the misery of the Ukrainian refugees, we knew what we all know, that the suffering on the other side of the border is far worse. The rape of a nation, the indiscriminate bombings, the intentional targeting of civilian populations, moved as we were by what we saw, it all came with a throbbing understanding that elsewhere things were much worse and only getting worse and worse. The 48-hour mission was organized and funded by UJA Federation of New York. 18 New York rabbis called on to bear witness, to see the crisis with our own eyes, in order that we should return to amplify the message to our home communities and share the work of life-saving UJA-funded agencies, like the JDC, the Jewish Agency, and so many others, and yes, to encourage you to give generously towards their sacred work. Many of you have already given directly to the agencies on the ground. Many of you have already given to the synagogue's Purim Drive. Park Avenue Synagogue has raised over three quarters of our $1 million goal, a goal which, with your text, email, or online commitments, I hope we reach either by the end of the weekend or, as I discovered possible two weeks ago when I kicked off the sermon, by the end of Adon Olam. Imagine, if you will, a school gymnasium, the kind we saw after Hurricane Sandy or Katrina, filled with rows and rows of cots occupied by people displaced from their homes. Now imagine several football fields of such cot-filled expanses. That's what I saw when we were in Szemszol, a small town in southeastern Poland, presently receiving a portion of the now near two million refugees. The refugees from Ukraine, for the purposes of today, can be divided into three categories. First, there are refugees with the financial means to go onto booking.com to find temporary residence or familial connections to travel to relatives wherever they may be. On a return flight home by way of Amsterdam, the passengers on the plane broke out into applause when the pilot announced that there were Ukrainian refugees on our flight en route to safe haven. The second and smallest group to which I'll return 
are Jewish or Jewish-adjacent Ukrainian refugees, the ones emigrating to Israel by way of the Jewish Agency for Israel, sometimes called Jaffe. The third and the largest group is a huddled mass seeking refuge in humanitarian aid centers like the ones that we visited. I couldn't help but take notice of the demographic makeup of the refugees, almost entirely women and children. The men we know are all back in Ukraine. They came with nothing, no baggage, just lots and lots of strollers. I will not soon forget, and I'm jumping ahead, the sight of a woman crossing the border from Ukraine to Poland with a Polish soldier holding her limp child in his arms. We spoke to the mayor of Shemshel, who shared with us the need for psychosocial support, the need for translators, the need for work permits, the need to help the most vulnerable from exploitation. We met with the medics supplying relief, speaking to volunteers from Natan, an Israeli all-volunteer nonprofit NGO who help people around the world in the wake of natural and human-made disasters. Doctors and nurses working hand-in-hand -hand with the Red Cross addressing the chronic health needs, the flu, GI issues, disorientation of the elderly, COVID, and when necessary, evacuating them to Jerusalem's Hadassah Hospital. On the day of our visit, the weather was mild enough. A week earlier, it had been icy cold and six people had died in one night of hypothermia. Our group dropped off bags and bags of vital humanitarian and medical supplies prepared by Afia volunteers, a UJA-funded relief organization. Park Avenue Synagogue has April 1st set if you are interested in going to an Afia volunteer site in Brooklyn to volunteer to pack medical supplies needing to be airlifted. When we stopped at the Shemshel train station, we saw the refugees arriving, and our group actually bumped into Jonathan Ornstein, the director of the JCC of Krakow. Jonathan explained to me that the refugees are going wherever they can, some to humanitarian centers in Poland, Moldova, Romania, and elsewhere, some to big cities like Warsaw, a city that has grown by 200,000 in the past few weeks, and some to Krakow, where agencies like the JCC of Krakow have transformed overnight from a JCC for the Jewish community to a refugee center for all of humanity. This theme was repeated throughout our trip, the pivoting of Jewish organizations in the face of the crisis. The largest city near the Poland-Ukraine border is Lublin, where we had dinner in a place called the Hotel Ilan. Before the Holocaust, the hotel housed one of the most prestigious rabbinical schools in the world, Yeshiva Chochmei Lublin, the yeshiva where Daf Yomi, the study of a page of Talmud a day, actually began. In the last few weeks, that hotel has been transformed into a JDC-funded relief center, its rooms now filled with refugees, its basement now filled with much-needed supplies. As a group Davin Mariv, the evening service in the yeshiva, I could feel the reverberations of history. Once the high seat of Jewish learning, gutted by the Nazis in the Shoah, transformed post-war into a Jewish hotel and presently serving as a JDC-funded relief center for anyone in need. When we arrived at the border itself, we were told it was much quieter than it had been the week before, though the Russian bombing in the western Ukrainian city of Lvov, 
the day before, there was definitely a steady flow of refugees. Every humanitarian relief agency was represented at the border, from Jehovah's Witnesses to Sikhs to Caritas to the IRC to Chabad to Polish citizens doing whatever they can. The Poles have responded with extraordinary and some would say uncharacteristic hospitality to the refugees. Why the Poles have received the Ukrainians but not the Syrian refugees on their Belarus border is a topic beyond the scope of this sermon. But as Americans, we need only look at our own mirror to know that borders do not merely mark boundaries between nations, but also accentuate the line of where empathy for and fear of the other clash. It was inspiring to see, if one can say such a thing, that the biggest tent closest to the border crossing was that of UJA-funded Hatsala Lalog Vulot, Rescuers Without Frontiers. What an amazing thing that the first flag a Ukrainian refugee sees when they cross into Poland is an Israeli one. We spoke briefly to Arya, the Israeli doctor in charge. Someone asked him whether any distinction is made in the treatment and care he provides to Ukrainian Jews as compared to non-Jews. He responded to us in Hebrew, 80 years ago, selections were made between Jews and non-Jews, and I'll have no part of that today. Natan, Hatzala, Afia, JDC, the Krakow of JC, uh, JCC of Krakow and otherwise, it was inspiring to see, in the face of the heartache, the countless acts of chesed, of compassion, being performed by Jewish organizations towards Jew and non-Jew alike. Inspiring as it was, as a Jew, it was also complicated. As we traveled through the Subcarpathian Mountains, I was well aware of how history was being turned on its head. I stared out into the forests, knowing that not so long ago, Jews hid in those same forests in southeastern Poland, where hundreds of thousands, if not millions, were murdered. As I wrote this sermon, I was flipping through my photos on my phone and I noticed that I had taken a picture of a nondescript Polish train track, a picture as odd as it is understandable given where we were. The hotel we stayed at in Lublin was just blocks away from the site of the Majdanek concentration camp, which if you have visited now consists of an ashes-filled mausoleum. When we passed through the border town of Medica, we literally crawled through a fence into the ruins of what was once the synagogue of that community, a community whose every member had been dragged out by the Nazis and their collaborators into a nearby park and shot dead. Russia's war against Ukraine is not a Jewish story, but it is through the prism of my Jewish identity by which I experience my time in Poland. There's more Jewish blood spilled in Ukraine and Poland than anywhere else in the world. And even post-war and present day, Jewish president notwithstanding, the hot embers of anti-Semitism in that area of the world have not totally cooled. What exactly makes me a stakeholder in this story given the recent and not so recent reception of my people in the region? What would my predecessors think of the Jewish obligation to help Ukrainian refugees in Poland. Turning over in their graves may be too strong, but to say that it's complicated 
at the very least, extends the courtesy of being honest about the emotions involved. And while such complexity may be felt by all Jews, it's felt most certainly and most acutely by the Jewish state of Israel. As we listened to several officials, I thought about the criticism being leveled at Israel for taking in only a few thousand non-Jewish refugees, criticism emanating from people in countries such as our own that remain effectively closed to any refugees at all. I thought about the tightrope Israel is walking and all those folks taking pot shots at Israel from the cheap seats, insisting that Israel take a tougher stand against Russia, not realizing that Israel, by way of Syria, effectively shares a border with Russia. I thought about how Israel's ability to take care of its business up north against Hezbollah depends on the good relations with Russia, how a nuclear deal with Iran depends on cooperation with Russia, and how there's far more that we don't know than we do know about what's at stake here for Israel, save only that Israel's Orthodox Prime Minister was willing to openly break Shabbat and travel to Israel in order to save lives. I thought about all this and have decided that whatever questions I may have, at this moment in time, I choose to judge Israel's actions generously, and I would advise us all to do the same. Because if you haven't quite put the pieces together, let me spell it out for you. Israel must walk a narrow bridge, not just because of the Iran deal or the northern border with Syria, or even because of the Jews of Ukraine. Israel has to be cautious out of consideration for the Jews of Russia. Make no mistake, the Iron Curtain has once again fallen on Russia and the Russian Jewish community. In an authoritarian regime in which freedom of expression is denied, in which people are either labeled patriots or enemies of the state, in which the only flights out are through Turkey or Uzbekistan, the Russian community is presently frightened and vulnerable. The next chapter of the Jews of Silence is being written in real time. In all our moral outrage, before we go to the mattresses, let's just pause a beat to remember that there's a larger Jewish community, uh, as, as large if not larger than Ukrainian Jewry in Russia, which is effectively being held hostage right now. It is complicated. Bad as things are, and they are, make no mistake, they can get much, much worse. The trip was not an easy one. It was heartbreaking. The only moment of levity I can think of was when we made a pit stop at a McDonald's and I insisted on taking a selfie with five Orthodox rabbis with the golden arches behind me and I explained to them what a happy meal was. <laughs> but I was also inspired. I was inspired to meet young adults at the Moisha House in Warsaw who had redirected their Purim Sadakah towards volunteering at the border, defeating the hungry, and in some cases, taking refugees under their own roof. I was inspired by the grassroots efforts of many relief agencies on the ground, Jewish agencies funded by UJA, and I'm convinced more than ever that their efforts are quite literally saving lives. And I am grateful beyond words to live in a time when through the efforts of the Jewish agency, a Jew fleeing Ukraine can make Aliyah 
emigrate to Israel and live in a sovereign Jewish state. Indeed, the final site visit of our trip was not at the border, but just blocks away from our Warsaw Hotel on the morning of our departure. At 6 a.m., our group was invited to walk to another hotel where a busload of Ukrainian Jewish refugees were leaving to board a bus to board a plane to make Aliyah to Israel. And a few of us went to help with their bags to wish them well and bless them on their journey ahead. We saw their exhaustion. We felt their fear of the unknown and we sensed their angst as they separated from their husbands and fathers and sons, not knowing when they would see them again. And in all of the emotion and commotion, this extraordinary lead staffer from the Jewish agency, Daniela, pulled me aside and discreetly motioned to a woman in her 30s and her school-aged daughter and whispered to me in Hebrew, Rabbi, those two, they're not Jewish. And I gave her a puzzled look, to which she explained, they are the granddaughter and great-granddaughter of righteous Gentiles, descendants of non-Jews, who 80 years ago helped save Jewish lives during the Holocaust. Acknowledged as such by Yad Vashem, a righteous Gentile is extended the same right of emigration to Israel as any Jew. Daniela explained that this woman's Jewish neighbors in Ukraine knew of her pedigree and made sure that she knew that Israel was there not just for them, but for her and her daughter. And I stood there, bleary and teary-eyed, thinking of the heartbreaking and complicated and beautiful world in which we live. A world in which a Gentile Ukrainian woman can be saved by her Jewish neighbors and airlifted to the sovereign state of Israel on account of the life-saving deeds of kindness performed by her grandparents generations ago. And in that moment, what was all so complicated suddenly became less so. I stepped forward, motioned to her if she needed help with her luggage, and she softly smiled, nodding yes. I carried her luggage to the bus. We took a selfie together, and I gave her a hug as she climbed on the bus on her way to the airport. For some, it might be carrying a bag. For others, volunteering to pack medical supplies. For others, getting engaged politically. And still others, writing a check. We must each do what we can, knowing that doing nothing is not an option. What is so complicated need not be so. It is only human to have questions, but we dare not let those questions prevent us from alleviating human suffering. Lest we forget the name of our Parsha is Sav, the Hebrew word meaning to command, a command which Rashi explains is there to tell us to respond with alacrity when sadaka, when chesed, and justice are at stake. Let us all heed that command and respond to the suffering of humanity and help heal this world in so need of care and healing. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.